So would you like to turn perhaps to, uh, with me to Hosea chapter 3? Short chapter. Good to have it open in front of you. <coughs> and you discovered that your boyfriend had been sleeping with your mother. The audience sniggered. The teenage girl on the stage ducked her head at the burst of attention. The mother was a middle-aged woman in a too tight black dress, sitting with her arm entwined with the skinny one of a boy in a sleeveless T-shirt. She waved to the crowd. He grinned. Talk show host Christy Adams wasted no time. Do the two of you really sleep together? The mother, still holding the hand of the boy, looked at him. He grinned and she smiled. Yes, he said. She went on to explain how she'd been lonely since her divorce. Her daughter's boyfriend hung out at the house all hours of the day and night. And well, one afternoon he just plopped down beside her on the couch and the next thing, well, her face flushed. The boy shrugged as they let the audience complete the sentence. The girl sat expressionless and silent. Aren't you worried what this might teach your daughter, Christy said. I'm only teaching her the ways of the world. What about you, Christy asked the boy. Aren't you being unfaithful to your girlfriend? The boy looked honestly amazed. I still love her, he said. I'm only helping her by loving her mother. We're one happy family. There's nothing wrong with that. The audience erupted with whistles and applause. Just as the hubbub began to subside, Christy told the lovers, not everyone would agree with you. I've invited a guest to react to your lifestyle. With that, the crowd got quiet, anxious to see who Christie had recruited to spice up the dialogue. He's the world's most famous theologian. His writings have long been followed by some and debated by others. Making his first appearance on the Christie Adams Show, please welcome controversial theologian, scholar and author, the Apostle Paul. Polite applause welcomed a short, balding man with glasses and a tweed jacket. He loosened his tie settled himself down into the stage chair and Christie skipped the welcome. You've got trouble with what these people are doing? Paul held his hands in his lap, looked over at the trio and then back at Christie. It's not how I feel that matters. It's how God feels. Christie paused so that the TV audience could hear the oohs rippling through the studio. Then tell us, please, Paul, how does God feel about this creative tryst? It angers him. And why? Evil angers God because evil destroys his children. What these people are doing is evil. The strong words triggered a few hoots, some scattered applause, and an outburst of raised hands. Before Christie could speak, Paul continued, As a result, God has left them and let them go their sinful way. Their thinking is dark, their acts are evil, and God is disgusted. A lanky fellow in the front shouted out his objection. It's her body. She can do what she wants. Ah, oh, I said, but that's where you're mistaken, said Paul. Her body belongs to God. And it's to be used for him. What we're doing is harmless, objected the mother. Look at your daughter, Paul urged her, gesturing towards the girl whose eyes were full of tears. Don't you see that you harmed her? You traded healthy love for lust. 
You traded the natural for the unnatural. You traded truth for lie. Christie could restrain herself no longer. Do you know how old-fashioned that sounds? All this talk about God and right and wrong and immorality. Don't you feel out of touch with reality? Out of touch? No. Out of place? Yes. But out of touch? Hardly. God doesn't sit silently while his children indulge in perversion. He lets us go our sinful way and reap the consequences. Every broken heart, every unwanted child, every war and tragedy can be traced back to our rebellion against God. People sprang to their feet. The mother put her finger in Paul's face. Christie turned to the camera, delighting in the pandemonium. We've got to take a break, she shouted over the noise. Don't go away. We've got some more questions for our friend, the apostle. Now, of course, the script is fictional. But Paul's words are not. You know where they come from, don't you? They come straight out of the Bible. They come straight from Romans chapter 1. God is angry at evil. It comes as a shock to so many people today. We just assume that uh, you know, God is too busy monitoring the planets to notice what we get up to. Or rather, many people just assume you know, that he's like a doting grandfather who uh, is blind to the faults of his grandchildren. Surely, he, he loves us so much, he would, he would never be angry with us. But love is always angry, isn't it? You can't be indifferent when those that you love are destroying themselves. Doesn't that make you angry? See, the, the psalmist tells us that God is angry with us every day because of our sin. Doesn't mean he stopped loving us. Love and anger aren't opposites. Indifference is the opposite of love, not anger. And, and you see that so very clearly here in, in these opening chapters of the prophecy of Hosea, in the story of, of Hosea and, and Gomer, his unfaithful wife. You see, God is not indifferent to his people. He cares passionately about how we behave and how we treat one another. James Montgomery Boyce calls this chapter, chapter 3 of Hosea, the greatest chapter in the Bible. Because it tells us the greatest story that's ever been told. Not just the story of Hosea and Gomer, but the story of God's love. For hell-deserving, unfaithful people like ourselves. Uh, on the surface, it just appears to be the story of a dysfunctional marriage. God tells Hosea in chapter 1 to marry a promiscuous woman and an adulterous wife. And, and we, we're told they have children, two boys and a girl. There's a big question mark over whether all those children were actually Hosea's. That's very clear in chapter 1 of, of, of the prophecy. Why would God do a thing like that? Why would God ask a faithful prophet to marry an unfaithful wife? Isn't that cruel? I mean, if God just wanted a visual aid, you know, to illustrate a point, why couldn't he make something out of cardboard and color it, color it in? Why mess? Why mess with Hosea in this way? Why break his heart? Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Hosea, says this, God compares his situation in, in the prophecy of Hosea not to that of an autocrat whose orders nobody dares question, nor to a father who rejoices in an adoring wife and children, 
but that, to that of a husband whose wife has left him and a father whose children are like strangers in his own house and are fast destroying themselves. That's, that's how the book of Hosea opens with that story of a dysfunctional family. And, and, and it's as if God is saying to his people through the real-time experience, painful experience of his servant Hosea, it's as if God is saying to, to Israel, read my lips. You're not listening to me. I really want you to understand what your sin and your rebellion is doing to me. It's not just annoying me. It's not just frustrating me. It's breaking my heart. And I want you to know that. It's like when he said to Abraham, remember, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, up that mountain and sacrifice him. Why on earth would God put Abraham through something like that? Because he wants to reveal his heart to us. He wants us to understand how much it cost him to redeem us. This, is, this isn't just a bit of theatre. This is, this is God revealing his heart, showing us, warning us, wooing us calling us back into a relationship with him. I want you to see three things in this little chapter. Uh, I want us to see, first of all, our plight as human beings, and then the price that is paid to redeem us, to bring us back. Uh, and then I want you to see as well, at the end of the chapter, a promise or a prophecy. So let's have a look at just those three things. First of all, our plight. I told you a little bit about the background here of this, uh, this chapter. Starts in chapter 1. And if you get the full story, you'd have to read those first three chapters together. It's a pretty sordid reading. But then in verse 1, uh, the Lord says to Hosea, Go and show your love to your wife again. She's loved by, even though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Nothing's changed. She's still unfaithful. But go and show your love to your wife again, he says. She's been sleeping around. And what she doesn't know is that all the t this time that she's been unfaithful to Hosea and been bringing disgrace upon him, uh, all this time Hosea has actually been secretly paying the bills, caring for her behind the scenes, providing for her. Uh, you can see that back in verse 8 of chapter 2. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it like this. She didn't know that it was I all along who whined and dined and adorned her that I was the one who dressed her up in the big city fashions and jewellery that she wasted on wild Baal orgies. And now here she is in chapter 3, and it just goes from bad to worse. She's lost her looks. She's back on the streets. She's destitute and discarded by all her lovers. She's hell-bent on destroying herself. And God says to Hosea, her husband, go and love her again. There's an old hymn we used to sing here at Grover. It might even have been a Joseph Irons hymn, for all I know. It was an old hymn, and there was a line in that hymn, Preserved in Jesus, when my feet made haste to hell, and there I would have been, but he does all things well. That's our story too, isn't it? Even before I knew him, long before I ever became a Christian, when I was going my own sweet way, in rebellion against him, trampling on his heart. Even then, he was circulating the blood in my veins, pumping air into my lungs, preserved in Jesus, when, like Gomer, my feet made haste 
to hell. Remember the Apostle Paul. Remember his testimony. What he says, I think it's in Galatians. He, he, he reminds us that he was separated from his mother's womb. He didn't become a Christian until he was in his 30s, I think. And before he became a, a follower of Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church. A murderer of Christians. And yet all that time when he was rebelling against God and fighting against God and killing against the pricks, all that time he was preserved in Jesus. Not that God was the author of any of that wickedness that he was capable of. But all that time, even in his rebellion, God was preserving him. Keeping him alive. God says to Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Even though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, nothing's changed. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. This is how God loves his people. Unconditionally, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. We're not sure what those sacred raisin cakes are. Perhaps they're Welsh cakes, I don't know. Uh, they're probably offerings. They're probably offerings to uh, Canaanite gods. How can you love people who prefer raisin toast to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? How can you love people who worship created things rather than the Creator? But we do, don't we? It's just what we do. It's just what we're like. We chase after trivialities. We give our hearts to next to nothing. Tolstoy, in his novel Anna Karenina, describes the relationship between Anna and her lover, Ronsky, like this. He says, he soon felt that the fulfillment of his desires gave him only one grain of the mountain of happiness that he'd expected. This fulfillment showed him the eternal error that men make in imagining that their happiness depends on the realization of their desires. We make many mistakes, but here's the biggest one, says Tolstoy. It's an eternal error, he says. It, it will ruin you forever. To imagine that your happiness depends on the realization of your desires. C.S. Lewis says the same thing, doesn't he, in Screwtape Letters, when Uncle uh, Wormwood gives advice to his, uh, uh, Uncle Screwtape, rather, gives uh, rights to his young nephew Wormwood and, and advises him on how to trap human beings. He says, this is how to destroy the human race, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the story of the, of, the, of the raisin cakes, I think. That's the story of Goma. She's a sex addict. At, at first, it, it, it was exciting, pleasurable, but then she lost her looks and her lovers, and she's dumped and discarded, and nobody wants her anymore. Her lovers are now her pimps, selling her to whoever is paying for her. That's, that's what happens. That's the plight of the human race. It is a downward spiral of pain and shame. That's what happens when you, you substitute anything for the God who made us and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That's what happens when you look for satisfaction and fulfillment and, and purpose and meaning anywhere else except in God. That's what happens. We, we, we become addicted to these things. These things take control of us. It's a downward spiral of shame and pain. But it gets worse before it gets better. Notice there's a price to pay. This is the second point. Look at verse 2. So he says, I bought her. So where is she now? She's in the slave market, isn't she? 
So I bought her, says Hosea, for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. That adds up to about 30 shekels. Uh, the price that you would pay for a slave in the slave market. And that's where she is now, in this chapter. She's up for sale. Stripped naked so that her potential buyers can see what they're getting. It doesn't get any more sordid than this. And they begin bidding for her body. And then, at the, at the depths of her degradation, at the bottom of her life, where she must have felt so worthless and so ashamed, she hears a familiar voice. Fifteen shekels, nine bushels of barley. It's the voice of her husband. See, in the Old Testament, if, if a wife behaved the way that Gomer behaved, then bringing such you know, shame and, and disgrace on the family, divorce was mandatory, really. Death was common in that culture in that time. An adulteress would be stoned to death. But what does Hosea do? He brings her back and he brings her home. Look at verse 3. I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. He brings her back into the family home brings her back into the marriage. He restores the relationship. Now, just think how difficult that is. Just think how costly that would have been. Not just financially, paying all her debts. Not, not just financially, but, but culturally and, and socially. And of course, emotionally. What is it going to take to repair this relationship? He's been betrayed. He's been humiliated. He's been hurt. His heart has been torn to shreds. It's not easy to forgive, is it? You can't just kiss and make up. What's, what's he going to do with all that pent-up pain and anger inside of him? It, it won't just dissipate. Either, either she must take it or he must bear it. Either he's going to take it out on her I can imagine some of his friends down at the local uh, encouraging him to do just that. To take his revenge on her. To punish her for the way she's treated him. Either he's going to take it out on her or he must bear the pain and shame himself. And he does. He absorbs it into, uh, upon himself. He, he could have made her pay he might have poured out his righteous indignation upon her. Instead, he absorbs it into himself. You see, there's always a price to pay when you love someone in this way, isn't there? To love anyone with problems always involves a substitutionary sacrifice. Think about it. I mean, surely you, you, you know this from your own experience. Let's say you've got a friend who's going through a, a tough time. And she's lonely. And you know, if you go to see her, well, there goes your evening. So it's her or you, isn't it, in that scenario? You could have your evening and keep yourself emotionally intact while she suffers alone. Or you can sacrifice your evening in order to bring comfort and friendship to your friend. Do you see? Any act of love towards a needy person involves a kind of substitutionary sacrifice. Don't you see? There's always a price to pay. There's always a cost involved in loving people. 
And my friends, what we need to understand today is there's a price to pay for God to love us. There's a cost involved in our redemption. If the relationship between ourselves and the God who made us is to be restored, it's costly. Sometimes, and I think we just take it for granted. It's like when we go for coffee nowadays. I'm almost afraid to walk into a shop nowadays if I've got my phone in my pocket. You don't even have to look for loose change anymore, do you? You just have to, what do you, just tap the pay pass thing. <laughs> and, hey, presto, you've paid for your coffee. And, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, um, I think we preach the cross like that. I think sometimes, as, as evangelical Christians, we can become so accustomed to, to understanding the, 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 the cross and, and the, the, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. We just assume that it was, there's some kind of automatic financial transaction going on here and that Jesus just went to the cross to set us free. And No, my friends, it's, it's, it cost him. That's what Hosea is being shown here. It cost him to go to the cross. It cost him emotionally, psychologically, physically. Someone has said God didn't kill Abraham for lying about his wife. He didn't execute Lot for drunkenness and incest with his daughters. He didn't have David and Bathsheba stoned for their adultery. No, God put those stones aside until the day when he would hurl them at someone else. Jesus... Jesus bore the punishment that our sin deserved. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, the prophet Isaiah says. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. Remember when we were in London, I remember hearing the testimony of V.J. Menon, remember? V.J., some of you will remember him perhaps. He, he was a worker in the city of London, a Hindu, uh, working in the city of London, converted to the ministry of St. Helens, Bishop's Gate. He just tells his story. He wrote a little book called Found by God, and he tells how he was just walking along one lunchtime in the day when they used to have lunch time in the city, and uh, just got into a crowd of men who were walking down the street and found himself in a medieval church, <laughs> listening to Dick Lucas preach. And this is how he describes what happened to him. He says, I wanted to belong to God so much that in my heart I was willing to pay any price. But this is what it actually cost me. Imagine I came to your house with a kidney machine to sell when you're on the point of dying through kidney failure. And you ask me, how much will you pay for this kidney machine? If I, if I were to say to you, I'll exchange it for the rubbish in your back garden, would you consider that too great a price to pay? Wouldn't you be only too willing to pay any price for that kidney machine? And Vijay says, well, what I had to pay Jesus was the rubbish in my life, my sin, my selfishness, all that made me unhappy and made my life a misery. I, I could have cherished my rubbish and said no to him, as some people do, but that thought never even crossed my mind. See, that's it, isn't it? You and I have nothing to contribute to our salvation except the sin that we need to be saved from. And as Paul reminds us in Romans it is, that is the very place where God shows his love. He shows his love to us in that while we were yet sinners. With all that rubbish in our backyard. While we were yet sinners, just like Gomer, hopeless and helpless, chasing after her lovers. Just like Israel, running after the Canaanite gods. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. He died. The one to whom it is not robbery to claim equality with God. He took upon himself the form of a servant and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, the most painful, shameful death. Sometimes we we sing about it. We sanitize the cross, don't we? We sing about the, the green hill far away outside the city wall where our dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. The lady who wrote those words was from the Emerald Isle, where everything is green, because it never stops raining. (laughs) But there is no green hill outside the city wall. Golgotha is the place of the skull. It, It was the rubbish tip. It was the place outside the city where all the rubbish was dumped. Gehenna. The refuse dump where the city's rubbish was burnt. That's where Jesus has come to save us. That's how Jesus died outside the city wall as so much sin-cursed refuse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, the Bible says. The cross is the end of the road, you see, for sinners like us. Just as the slave market was the end of the road for Gomer. And Jesus went there. God made him sin for us. He who knew no sin. All our sin, all our uncleanness, all our filthy rebellion and ugliness, all our distorted emotions were laid upon him. God made him to be sin for us. Our sin was dumped on him. And his righteousness, his beautiful, winsome, lovely, pure righteousness is wrapped around us. And guess what? God doesn't see us in our sin anymore if we've trusted in Jesus. He sees us in his son. And we're accepted in the beloved. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the difference between moralism and Christianity, isn't it? Moralism says, pick yourself up, clean yourself up, get your act together, and then maybe God will accept you. And sometimes reform preaching can sound very much like that. But what does the gospel say? While we were yet sinners. Mark Chandler tells how when he was at college, he sat next to a young woman at church. She was a 26-year-old single mum, trying to balance raising a, a child on her own and, and getting her degree. He said that uh, he and some of his friends began sharing the gospel with her and they would babysit occasionally to give her a bit of a break and then she got invited to what she was led to believe was a concert to hear a friend play in a band. It turned out to be a Christian meeting. I don't know why we do that to people. Uh, The guy up front said he was going to talk about sex. He took out a red rose and smelled it it and showed how pretty it was and held it up to the auditorium and and then he threw it out into the crowd. There were about a thousand people there. And he told the, he told the crowd to, 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 to look at this rose, to, to feel the texture of it and to, to smell it and to, and to pass it around. Then he just launched into a tirade, Chandler says, it was one of the worst, most horrific tirades on what sex is and isn't that I've ever sat through. And I'm thinking, with Kim beside me, what are you doing? As he wrapped up, he asked, where's my rose? Some kid brought the rose back to the platform. It was broken. The petals were broken. And lifting it up for all to see, he shouts out at the top of his voice, Now, who would want this? 
Who would want this? And Chandler says, anger welled up within me. And I wanted to shout out, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants that rose. That's the gospel, isn't it? Not try harder, not clean up your act, and then Jesus might, uh, might accept you. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus wants that rose, like Gomer, hopeless, helpless, messed up, driven by demons, controlled by our own disordered desires. That's when Jesus came for us and died for us. And by his death on the cross, you and I are given a fresh start and a new beginning. Now I can hear some of you saying, well, where is that in the text? Where does it say that God came in, God himself comes into the marketplace to redeem his people, to pay the price, to bring them home? Where is Jesus in this story? Where is the cross? Well, just look at verses 4 and 5. There's a prophecy here, isn't there? There's a promise. See what it says? The Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Very soon now, not long after... Hosea's day, the ten tribes of Israel will be carried off by the Assyrians into oblivion. People talk about the lost tribes of Israel. Is that the end of the story? No, it's not, is it? There's an afterwards, do you see? See what it says? Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And David their king? But David's been dead for years. This is way after David's time. And yet he says they're going to return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they'll, they'll come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Yes, there's going to be a time when Israel is in the wilderness far away. But, but eventually, do you see what this is promising us? That the children of Israel will return to David their king. So there must be another David. There must be a descendant of David. There must be great David's greater son. Jesus. And in the New Testament, he comes riding on Zechariah's donkey into Jerusalem. And the crowds go wild, waving their palm branches in the air and, and crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the Son of David! And in the Gospels, you remember, Jesus identifies himself not only as the Son of David, but as the bridegroom. Do you remember? The bridegroom who's going to be taken away in order to bring back his runaway bride. Yes, John the Baptist is the best man. But I must decrease, he says. He must increase. John the Baptist is the best man. But from heaven he came and bought her to be his, to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her sake. He died. You see, this marriage which has been so pulled apart by sin is going to be restored, never to be broken again. This marriage which appears to be on the rocks will be ultimately restored through the blood of Jesus. So what does this mean? It means that your life is not your own, doesn't it? You've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed. Not with silver or gold, but the precious blood of Jesus. There's an urban legend about Winston Churchill. According to the story, when he was a boy, he almost drowned and his life was saved by the gardener. Uh, years later, when he was prime minister, he nearly died of pneumonia, but his life was saved by penicillin. And the man who discovered penicillin, of course, was Sir Alexander Fleming. And according to the myth, he just happened to be the son of, a guard, of the gardener who had saved Churchill's life as a boy. Unfortunately, that's an urban myth. It's not true at all. I checked it out. Not... But the point still stands, doesn't it? 
Your life is, is not your own. You, you just can't live any which way you want. You owe your life not once, not even twice, but three times to the same person. Do you realize? Jesus, he made us. By him, all things were made, including you. And he redeemed us. He shed his blood to purchase us for himself. He's the word by which the world was made, and that word became flesh and blood and dwelt amongst us in order to die for our sins. He made us for himself. And when we ran from him in our sin and rebellion into the arms of other gods, he came and sought us and bought us with his own blood and brought us back to himself and has given us his spirit to indwell us. The spirit of Jesus lives in you if you're a Christian. You're not your own. Triply not your own. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are debtors to your mercy alone, your covenant mercy. Help us truly to understand what that means. Show us our sin, and then show us the Savior. We confess that we're not worthy to be accepted by you. None of us deserves your gift of eternal life. We're all guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. We need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for us, bearing pain and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Please forgive us and change us so that we can live from this day forward with Jesus as our King. Amen.